Hello and welcome to the MikoBits show. It's your way of keeping up with Bitcoin and blockchain. Now we know keeping up can be pretty difficult, can be a struggle. I know a lot of people are losing sleep and sometimes it feels like a full-time job. Well, it turns out it is my full-time job. I'm Miko. I'm uh, with Gumi Cryptos Capital, which is a venture capital firm in Bitcoin and blockchain, and so we definitely have a team of professionals. We can keep you up to date, but even more important, we have the MikoBits show, and that features some of the best minds in the industry. So today we have Evan Feng from CoinFund, and you know we're really just going to have a little bit of a recap of the news of the day. We're going to be talking a little bit about um, sort of what's happening in the industry and some of the things that uh, I think are exciting for uh, this this upcoming year. So anyhow, excited to uh, you know <clears throat> have this conversation. So just a quick disclaimer: this is a opinion, information, entertainment show. It's not intended to be investment advice. So seek a licensed professional if you want uh, entertainment advice. Otherwise, just uh, you know enjoy enjoy the show. So uh, Evan, great to have you. Great to be here, Miko. Thanks, and uh, hi to your audience. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess the first segment that we like to talk about is sort of the news segment. So, you know, one of the things that I've been seeing sort of in the news is this kind of very big time of change. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting that we've seen recently is the Ethereum all-time highs. So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts about, uh, you know, the news and, you know, what what you feel like is happening in, in the current uh you know, uh, macro Absolutely. currency. Absolutely. Great place to start from the top down. Um, I will just preface this and add on to the disclaimer that you had at the beginning of the show. These are just my opinions, not necessarily that of CoinFund uh, or any associated investment vehicles. Mm -hmm. But um, as it relates to the Ethereum all-time high, I think um, I'm probably in the camp of folks that view this as something that was, um, you know, somewhat of an inevitability following what Bitcoin was able to do at the start of this year. Um, specifically, I think what has helped push ETH uh, beyond the all-time high recently were, were a combination of factors, right? You have the progress that has been made with the ETH 2.0 deposit contract, as well as more recently, I think we're really starting to see the DeFi narrative um, catch hold. And I think there is maybe relative to two or three months ago, a greater belief um, among both crypto native investors um, and maybe even kind of retail uh, investors across all sizes and scales that um, the Ethereum story is something that could also capture some incremental mindshare of dollars flowing in. So I think whereas maybe a year ago, uh, most uh, investors would have thought Bitcoin drove the, the majority of the new institutional inflows, I think now there's a growing expectation that for some smaller subsegment of new buyers of Bitcoin, there um, there is some appeal to the story of a global, um, you know, virtual machine or world computer, or however you want to think about the additional services and networks that are enabled by Ethereum. Which, to be fair to the builders and entrepreneurs that we speak to, have have been building um, over the past few years, especially through Crypto Winter. But I don't think that it has quite percolated up to uh, mainstream. Kind of awareness but that's starting to happen which i think is a, is a pretty exciting story for ethereum as it, as it catches up to some of the bullish price action that we've seen manifest in bitcoin 
Yeah, that's fantastic. So, um, you know, one thing that'd be super helpful would be, you know, if you could give a little bit of your background and also, um, you know, some of the things that brought you to this uh, space. So we'd love to hear a little bit about you. Sure, sure thing, Miko. So um, similar to uh, some of the folks in crypto now, but I think a growing representation, I had a pretty traditional finance career before uh, deciding to spend my full time and efforts within the world of crypto and digital assets. So I started off my finance career doing investment banking at Barclays and then moved on over to what we, what we call the buy side. So investing on behalf of um, you know institutional clients at, at a couple of large hedge funds. I was at Citadel and then Point72, uh, both here in New York City on teams that covered stocks within tech, media, and telecom. And it was there that I gained the experience um, and formal training in learning how to evaluate the, the future earnings potential of stocks that I covered. Um, and what is really interesting is that, you know, as an aside, now I'm finding more and more that some of those skills are becoming increasingly applicable on a fundamental basis given um, you know, the value capture mechanisms of crypto have continued to evolve. But I first started dipping my toes into crypto along with, I think, uh, in a similar way as many people do by reading the Bitcoin white paper um, and then starting to invest personally in both my time and capital. And the more I learned, the more I realized, um, okay, this wasn't just uh, a way to get rich quick or even get rich slowly um, with the volatility in between, right? But rather, um, I think it really represented what I felt was a foundational technology that enabled so many different new um, business models, some of which will work, some of them, uh, some of which are, are just experiments, but uh, all of them kind of competing for attention and capital in a marketplace that hasn't really existed globally before. And um, I had an opportunity to join CoinFund in the last few months and have been helping out uh, on both the venture as well as the uh, liquid investing strategy. So really happy to bring that experience to bear especially given what I think is the future of, of this space and um, one that's becoming more real these days as we're starting to leave behind the era of ICO scams and um, some of the more, I, I think, um, kind of Wild West style, um, you know, misinformation is getting replaced by uh, real kind of traction that we can measure uh, with how adoption is progressing for a lot of these different projects, but even, you know, on the regulatory side as well, which is an important consideration in our space, given how nascent it is. Great. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the exciting things to hear from you about is sort of more like fundamental analysis, right? So that to me is exciting because, you know, it's stuff that I think is largely a gap in our relatively speculative space. So I think, you know, obviously mm -hmm. fundamentals matter a lot. So, you know, one of the things that's very interesting uh, in the news that I would love to have you comment on is, you know, very recently we saw a very fast run up in uh, a public equity of GameStop. So, you know, uh, GameStop, to me, one of the things that makes me a little nervous to see that is that, um, you know, there does seem to be a little bit less fundamentals there in my opinion and you know and I think the thing that becomes interesting is almost kind of like this Robin Hood investor thesis right where there's a lot of kind of retail sort of maybe aping in or you know I don't know exactly because I haven't had a chance to deconstruct the uh you know liquidity flows into something like that but I you know I did it did catch my eye it seems to have been uh, quite a ridiculous uh, ascent so I, I'd love to hear your views on on that and you know try to understand how you see this broadly 
Yeah, so uh, I don't, um, I'm, I'm not fully up to speed on all the intricacies of GameStop, meaning I don't cover them from a fundamentals basis, but I have been wa- reading some of the headlines and the articles associated with that. And uh, I agree, I think what we've seen in price action, I'm sure a lot of people have drawn similar parallels to what happened with Tesla, where in some cases, um, the retail crowd was earlier to, or maybe the retail crowd has always believed in the story, but only recently through the maybe idle additional time uh, afforded by kind of retail investors trading um, the personal accounts at home during the COVID lockdown. I think there have been, uh, you know, increased opportunities for them to perhaps uh, follow a very momentum style, uh, m- momentum kind of driven style of investing. And in a way that for some of these less liquid names prior to the recent moves for, for um, GameStop, you, you actually did see that um, based on, perhaps where short interest was and the fact that liquidity is still quite thin, that the institutional investors that were in the in stock like GameStop may have been more short than, than that long and such uh, as such, you know, were actually from a structural and risk management perspective uh, forced to, to perhaps cover some of their shorts as a result of this uh, retail inflow that wasn't um, necessarily anticipated, right? Because uh, institutional investors um, at traditional hedge funds, um, like like I mentioned, where I used to work, I think have pretty uh, specific risk tolerances, but also um, in their minds a view on how stock is supposed to trade. So for a, for a stock like GameStop, that might be based on sales or profitability estimates, or even store openings and closures. Mm. Uh, but I feel that for some of the retail crowd, um, by choosing to maybe focus on other measures like the uh, comparison that some of the activist investors in GameStop have made to being like an Amazon style business model in the future. Uh, there, I, I think is in some ways a greater level of trust in stories as opposed to fundamental metrics, but that cuts both ways, right? It's It's been good for the retail longs that have been able to benefit from the price um, appreciation partly as a result of this the short squeeze that I mentioned earlier, but at the same time, um, I think for every story like GameStop, where retail, uh, you know, sort of the retail David beats back the institutional Goliath, uh, there are plenty of stories that don't get reported as much where, um, you know, perhaps they bought some of these stocks that changed their names in 2018 and, and, and 17 to include blockchain and, you know, went up and then sold off, or even what we saw with, um, I believe, Kodak, right, looking for. Um, or, or using a different story to try to get uh, new interest, including, I would guess, more retail than institutional interest uh, related to, I think, manufacturing. Was it uh, PP&E or um, maybe like vaccine-related, um, you know, pivots, which to, a, I assume, a traditional equities research analyst that covers pharmaceuticals would have realized there was really no way, um, you know, Kodak could, could do something like that, even, even with um, then-President Trump's support um, from the top down, it's just impossible to retool a business that that quickly. So, uh, long story short, I think uh, yeah, GameStop is interesting, but personally, um, maybe I'm too risk averse. Those those just feel like coin flips. Uh, maybe bias one way or the other based on how you feel your read is of momentum, but the music can can stop as quickly as it starts. So. I personally am sort of cautious around the, those uh, dynamics, but as I mentioned at the beginning, I I don't know you know GameStop's fundamentals, um, so perhaps there are some early signs that the activism that is happening around that stock is is showing up. But I would guess you know most institutional investors, even if they're 
bullish about that story would be waiting at least one or two more quarters of results to really um, count that as traction achieved. Yeah, I to me like I separate uh, Tesla, and you know, I just for the audience's sake, you know, I do think that we want to have this conversation, which may not be a cryptocurrency conversation directly, but it's really a conversation about fundamentals. So you know, to me, I think that this is an important conversation. Uh, you know, so I just want to highlight that. So, you know, I don't think that Tesla is comparable to GameStop because what we have seen is we have seen a track record of successive delivery and obviously this kind of uh, really strong rise in sort of those fundamental numbers, right? So to me, mm-hmm. like if, if you know, I, I listened to several uh, quarterly reports from GameStop and, you know, they, they're talking about, oh, well, we have the launch of new consoles, PS5, and we have these kind of like tailwinds. But to be honest, you know, they're retail. And so like they're retail mm-hmm. during COVID, right? I think people are pricing in the return, but I'm just looking at the fundamentals there and I just don't think it's comparable. You know, to me, I think Tesla is a generational story about the transition of the energy base, you know, and I think that if you believe that hypothesis, then, you know, Tesla could be, could be, you know, the next Apple or it could be something very, very big. I don't see GameStop becoming the next Amazon. I mean, I realize there is a narrative like right. that, but I think that they don't have is, Elon. Yeah. And I think it, Elon's a big part of that. That's story. a huge part of it. That's absolutely. And they don't have Jeff Bezos either. So, you know, I, I honestly <laughs> think uh, that, you know, in terms of the leadership, it's been a little complicated. So I, I, I don't, I don't love it. So um, swinging back to the Ethereum story, though, one of the things that we've been seeing of late is Ethereum, but also DeFi blue chips. So we've been seeing Aave, we've been seeing some mm-hmm. uh, compound finance, you know, we've been seeing Uniswap, uh, Sushi to some extent. So, we, you know, we've been yep. seeing these kind of bellwethers of this uh, segment and that are, are kind of booming, which to me feels actually fairly healthy. Because, uh, you know, yes. it's not it's not this kind of like, you know, because to me, if you look at something like a GameStop, by comparison, you know, GameStop is like an altcoin, right? It's a, it's yep. not it's not like a I would say Tesla's, a, you know, blue ish chip. And then there's mm-hmm. bluer chips than that, obviously. But, you know, GameStop is like a, you know, what they call in crypto a shitcoin. So, you know, I'd love to hear right. your thoughts about like the Ethereum blue chips and, you know, what, yeah. what you see is happening in the market. Yeah, I, I agree, Mika. I think it's super interesting. Um, as we're recording this at the end of January, uh, you know, the weekend that just passed, did see a lot of those DeFi blue chips um, meaningfully outperform, while even you know ETH and, and Bitcoin relatively uh, uh, weren't quite as strong just in this re- weekend activity. And I think um, it was actually something we as a team were even discussing this morning, where uh, it feels like there's now a growing kind of market realization price-wise of, of kind of the projects that do have potentially relatively stronger um, value capture from a fundamental basis, right? I think it is interesting, and I mentioned this during my intro, that uh, there are now protocols, whether they have um, the expectation of a future fee switch like Uniswap or uh, with Sushi having actually kind of flipped that on as part of the fork or right after, um, where the activity that's working through or the volumes that take place on some of these decentralized exchanges actually um, can uh, go to some some portion of that value can go to the token holders um, in the form of uh, you know support for the the governance token and an accrual of value whether that's a, a buy and burn or some other kind of um, value return mechanism in the future and this is something that's fascinating because a year or two ago I would have 
thought it was a little preposterous that one could trust a protocol to do something like that, which is historically needed legal support, organizational support, and you know the presence of a company as well as regulators to make that happen in a way that was reliable for um, purchasers or, or um, I guess ultimately parties to these types of arrangements. But um, to see that happen in DeFi uh, makes a lot of sense, and I think that's part of the value discover uh, value. Uh, change that has resulted in price discovery to the upside. But I think another part of that has actually just been the um, just the, the growing awareness of, of DeFi separate from the volumes themselves. So maybe even a look forward, uh, if we think about it from a like relative stocks perspective, I think both numbers like fundamental earnings estimates are going up, but also this idea of the, the multiple um, that you would put on the earnings in the near period, because uh, I, I think we are essentially climbing the wall of worry for DeFi, similar to how Bitcoin has been continuing to climb the wall of worry as, as it you know, defeats or pushes back against some of the um, bearish scenarios through just the ongoing Lindy effect, et cetera. But DeFi is now doing that themselves because I think we have now grown past the, maybe what I would think is like the hangover period of DeFi, which after the summer and all the food coins, you know, most yeah. of them, have shed a lot of their total value locked and a lot of their users and a lot of the momentum of uh, the communities that you know, have seen their bags, um, you know, kind of round trip perhaps the prices that they were able to achieve. But then that relative to that, we've, we're seeing the separation of some of these um, blue chips, as you mentioned, Miko, reaching all time highs, both on a US dollar and versus a Bitcoin basis, which is extremely encouraging to see for sure. Yeah, so you know, from the for the audience's sake, there's a couple of very important keywords that kind of popped up. So you know, one of them, of course, is the word protocol. So I think protocol is a really important word, and it comes from you know, if you go all the way back, you know, the notion of a protocol is really just an agreement to do something a certain way, right? So I think that's mm -hmm. all a protocol is. Uh, you know, obviously, when we talk about decentralized protocols like Bitcoin. You know, we are really borrowing heavily from the usage of the word protocol in terms of internet protocols. So internet protocols like TCP IP or internet protocol, uh, you know, things like HTTP, which carries the World Wide Web, you know, they're just agreements. Now, a lot of the protocols are agreements effectively between computers, and they have to do with things like data formats, etc. In the case of Bitcoin, there is a protocol that helps the network establish consensus, right? So it helps the network uh, establish, you know, what what is reality, right? So the thing that popped up also in the conversation is governance. So the thing that's interesting about governance is governance really has to do with the parts of the protocol that can't be automated, right? And so really governance has to do with things like software updates. So that's a that's a really big deal, right? Because uh, you know people think software updates may or may not be that big of a deal, and you know when you think about getting updates on your phone with mobile apps, sometimes the updates don't change very much. But when you're talking about updates that have to do with the flow of incentives and money and things like that, governance becomes a very hot topic. So uh, swinging back towards fundamental analysis, you know I'd love to kind of have your view about. Um, whether there is an emerging model, because I think you alluded to something like a price to earnings 
ratio which exists and is very popular in the public equities market. So the question becomes, is there an equivalent set of core metrics that you study in the blockchain and DeFi space to understand the value of a protocol or a network? Yeah, great question. And I think the short answer is yes. Um, there is, I believe, an emerging consensus among full-time uh, as well as part-time, you know, retailing institutional investors that uh, have started to deploy capital with, with some of these projects that we mentioned earlier and the tokens that are, you know, governance tokens of those projects. So I think some metrics that a lot of people, including ourselves, look at would be, um, you know, total value locked as, as a very rough proxy for sort of like the balance sheet of a protocol. Um, if we want to anal anal analogize this back to the, the equities and company-based world, whereas something that is more like akin to revenue would be the, the GMV or the flows that happen on a protocol. Specifically, we can take a DEX example like Uniswap or, or Sushi. Maybe you're looking at that on an annualized basis. So for the audience, on, uh, GMV yes. and how do you... I'm sorry, sorry that. that's just kind of gross merchandise volume. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's an acronym from the e-commerce days, but you can just think of it like um, the total volume that is traded on these are decentralized exchanges that we're talking about. So really just a, a, a proxy for how busy and how active um, users are utilizing that platform. So whenever uh, user A and user B end up kind of making trades or le le I guess leveraging the utility um, of that DEX by going to the liquidity pools at different times, uh, that you know sort of counts toward uh, the, the summation across a time period. So we might look at something like a uh, trailing kind of weekly or a 30-day number annualized for how the volumes on those exchanges have um, trended, similar to how you might even be looking for similar metrics for Coinbase or how an investor for Coinbase might be looking to value that, um, you know, rumored equity as they've announced they've filed privately for um, their equity to go public in some at some point in the future. Um, but you can actually apply some of those analyses to these decentralized exchanges as well. And then lastly, something that um, people tend to do would be uh, to think about the maybe the percentage of those flows that uh, could be captured as value for the token. So for example, with Sushi, as you mentioned earlier, Miko, um, there's a five basis point fee that the protocol um, captures and ultimately um, by holding the token, it, the mechanism gets a little more complicated with sort of how the value is returned, but um, conceptually, the smart contracts, which are fully auditable by anybody, but also have been audited as well by professional um, kind of audit firms that are digitally native or uh, crypto native, um, the, these protocols are able to um, relay that value back to holders. So in, in some rough way, you can think of that as uh, a unit of earnings or revenue upon which you can apply multiples or um, relative to themselves in the past historically, or maybe versus some of the peers. Um, although, you know, the caveat being, it's still so early in a lot of these experimental prod projects and protocols that making everything apples to apples is, is actually quite tricky. Some don't have their fee toggles turned on. Some um, have different emission mechanisms. So the token supplies um, could be more volatile in one, one place going to the future than than another. So I think that's where um, active managers like CoinFund and, and, and Gumi um, and folks that kind of spend all day looking at this stuff are able to make a bit of a case for one or the other. But it does require um, a, a bit more work than just 
sort of looking at the charts on DeFi Pulse. But that's all obviously a good start to, to the fundamental analysis. Yeah, I agree with this general mindset, and I, I'm very much kind of in the mood of fundamentals. I love the maturation of the industry and the movement of kind of primary metrics and more sophisticated measures, because it's rewarding. Obviously, the capital markets in their ideal function kind of reward growth and they reward kind of promising projects with lots of kind of usefulness, right? But the thing that I think is potentially an interesting one is, you know, you mentioned TVL, which is total value locked. So, you know, that's a measurement of the value of assets that are locked within smart contracts issued by the project. So. Um, the thing that I think is important to try to understand, though, is that I think the word locked may be a little bit of a misnomer, right, in the sense that um, the, you know, those, those values are kind of free to flow, right? So the issue that is really interesting about analogizing a balance sheet with something like TVL is that, you know, a balance sheet is really under the control of the corporate entity of whom the balance sheet is recorded, right? So in a sense, like the balance sheet, uh, those are assets that could potentially be sold off or, you know, that are pretty hard assets under the control of the entity. Uh, whereas uh, I think in the case of, uh, you know, TVL, uh, TVL is actually very, it's a little different, right? So I think it's clearly uh, analogous, but I think it's also complex to, uh, you know, equate, and I think there there can be pitfalls. Definitely, uh, that's a really important um, clarification. I'm glad you brought that up, Miko, and it's one of the many examples where um, I think we as humans do tend to look for patterns um, in the unfamiliar of what we're used to that is familiar to us, and that that sort of nuance there is is a really uh, good example of of why that's the case, right? I think crypto in general has always tended to feel in some ways similar to what we know, but in others like very radically different, which is the, the point about uh, point of control here. So absolutely. Yeah, so CoinFund has had really blockbuster performance. So, you know, congratulations for that, you know, and you have a terrific Thanks. team, wonderful team members, very smart methodology. So, uh, you know, what would you characterize as sort of the, your, what's what's your secret? Yeah, I think the secret is just, as you mentioned, having um, a, Good team. Uh, we, we've actually, can, you know, grown with both my joining the firm as well as a few other um, hires over the last few months. And um, at the same time, you know, we've kind of retained that core uh, of, of excellence with our uh, founder Jake and some of the more senior partners that have been around for a while, as well as uh, the more recent um, joiners like myself. But I think through it all, uh, what we have continued to strive for is to maintain. Um, you know, a non-dogmatic approach to investing. You can see that through the fact that we have different strategies that encompass both the venture as well as the liquid investing uh, arms of the firm. But then also, even as we approach investment committee decisions, um, it's still very much, uh, you know, an open debate, like all assumptions for what we would be underwriting for an investment, um, the data that it takes to get us comfortable, and even, you know, the flat hierarchy that we have in terms of, I, I never feel uncomfortable disagreeing with any of the other partners, if, if there are points that we, um, you know, want to hash out during the investment committee. So I think that all ultimately combines to be um, reflected in, you know, hopefully the the kind of past past returns uh, being something we can sustain uh, in both bull and bear market regimes, which is always uh, an important point to make, right? I think everybody in the space um, 
will look pretty good if the bull, bull trends continue, as we believe with respect to some of these, um, you know, idiosyncratic drivers of, of price discovery that are tailwinds. But at the same time, you know, when that happens, deals do tend to get more competitive. There, there may be fraud from certain sub-verticals uh, kind of creeping in, but just maintaining a level head and keeping your underwriting standards are probably ultimately the, the best ways that we are able to, you know, perform our fiduciary responsibility and deliver the best risk-adjusted returns for our um, our LPs. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, uh, you know, maybe you could walk me through like a couple of historical things that you guys have, may, you know, gotten behind that have been, uh, you know, successful, and you know why why you, what what the thinking was behind it, and you know how how to you know how how it all happened. Sure. Um, so. I have been at CoinFund since the beginning of um, September, so it's been a little over four months. Um, of the deals that I that we have announced since um, I started, I think one where um, I did some work and uh, I think we're especially happy about um, is our involvement with Rarible, where we um, had announced uh, that we were kind of involved, well, we led their, their pre-seed investment and you know, have been very active with that team um, as they've launched their token. And, you know, we continue to feel that the NFT vertical is an area where we do uh, differentiate ourselves with our thought leadership. Um, you know, Jake's still working on some additional blog content along with yep. some of the other, um, you know, active network participation and just uh, efforts we have to, to help grow that space. Uh, our view on Rarible is probably represent representative or your, our view on NFTs, just given how, how much overlap there is, they, they play in that space and um, the content we've put out, uh, both in support of Rarible as an investment, but also around NFTs, um, really speaks to our core belief that it could be one of those ideas that is ultimately as large, if not larger than even DeFi um, and an impact, similar kind of scale of impact relative to what it can contribute to the uh, Ethereum ecosystem. So uh, a lot of our work, um, both getting comfortable with that pre-seed investment and the idea that we probably um, remain active in trying to help our portfolio companies, including Rarible, would be the idea that, um, you know, humans, we love to collect things, whether uh, it's art, whether it's collectibles, whether it's, um, you know, in-game digital assets. You can look at the really vibrant uh, in-game economies of these large uh, franchises like Activision Blizzard, um, they, they have a lot of different games where you can um, historically, you, you might have been able to buy loot boxes or more recently battle passes, but these are ultimately for cosmetics that have no impact on the balance of the game. And yet we as humans enjoy um, opportunities to look different from our friends or to collect things that um, are limited in supply. And I think this is now starting to translate over to uh, assets that are becoming natively digital and can attest to provenance and even uh, past kind of holdership. You can kind of see who owned this before you if you purchased a, an NFT in the secondary market. And I think it's still very early days and some of the other support services that we believe will further help the growth of the non-fungible token ecosystem, such as better um, you know, transparency on historical price or ways to value some of these, given they are less fungible than something uh, more homogeneous like one bitcoin versus another putting aside um you know utxos and getting too in the weeds but uh yeah i think that that's definitely a space we're really excited about um and then there are a few others uh that uh, I, i've worked on but we haven't 
announced yet, but happy to come back on the show maybe in the future when there's some more deals that we can talk about under our belt and some of which we've, I know uh, your team and ours, Miko, we, we've kind of yeah. done diligence on and caught up about separately. So absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely. very, it's been a very exciting, it's been a very exciting four months that feels a lot longer, but that's always what crypto is like. Yeah, so, you know, we have actually our sister company, uh, which is Gumi Games Corporation. You know, Gumi Crypto's capital is actually a pure uh, blockchain VC, so we don't actually have any particular affinity or games thesis. However, uh, you know, the Gumi Games Company is the publisher of My Crypto Heroes, and, you know, mm -hmm. we definitely have Gumi Crypto's capital. My fund has invested in OpenSea, and, you know, we did look at Rarible, and we liked what we saw there you know so there's definitely an excitement around this emerging space i think from an audience perspective if you want to get a much uh, broader perspective specifically on uh, nfts or non-fungible tokens highly recommend that you check out a show i recorded previously with jake bruckman from coin fund uh, on uh, the fund thesis for nft very detailed and very, uh, I think, smart. Uh, I think you were talking about the total size. Uh, in my view, I think that the size of the uh, addressable size of the NFT market is probably larger than the size of the existing internet. But I also believe that the uh, size of the DeFi and financial services segment of cryptographic assets is possibly 10 times larger than that. So, you know, to me, obviously, these are very much kind of uh, back of the envelope numbers. And, you know, but yep. to me, the thing that I think Jake pointed out is that really all, you know, an NFT is sort of a, a uniquely distributed token. So uh, Bitcoin has 20 up to 21 million supply. And of course, an NFT being non-fungible ideally has a supply of one right now obviously there's variations you know sometimes people issue 10 copies of something you know but the principle becomes these unique digital assets right and the thing that i think is fascinating about them becomes you know that they become tokenized representations of intellectual property rights online you know and when we talk about intellectual property rights online it extends of course to the real world i mean it was recently that elon musk apologized for being very slow in introducing two-factor authentication into digitally unlocking your tesla using a mobile app, right? So he's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, we have the bare minimum of cryptographic security for controlling your car from a mobile phone, which is two-factor authentication, right? There's no reason why a cryptographic token shouldn't be involved in essentially asset custody for cars, for houses, mm -hmm. for anything under the sun, you know, and so it becomes on and offline digital property and digital property rights, including things like home, deeds and titles, you know, so I, I do believe yep. that, you know, there is a way in which this phenomenon of digitally provable ownership becomes sort of superimposed over not just all digital assets, but all real assets. So, you know, I think that that's, that's de you know, because it's like, how do you prove that you own something? Well, at the moment, you're appealing to government and third parties that are trusted intermediaries saying, oh, you do own that house. Here's the government record, you know, but I think in the long run, governments will even benefit from the low cost of these kinds of like provable decentralized digital proof. So I, I think NFT is a For very sure. exciting topic. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about the NFT topic is, is that it represents a primary net new value creation 
<clears throat> coming from the uh, digital properties of blockchain as opposed to something that is much more kind of uh, just pure speculation, right? Because speculation right. is zero sum, right? So if you make yep. money from speculation, somebody else is losing money from speculation, right? Whereas in the case of something like digital art, uh, gaming collectibles, uh, these types of things, uh, there can be a non-zero-sum quality because people are creating enjoyment, they're creating entertainment, yep. they're creating engagement, they're creating net new, uh, you know, assets in the economy that you know people are choosing to value. And you know, I think if the non-blockchain digital gaming space and the growth of it during COVID is any indication, mm -hmm. digital revenue is a big issue and here to stay. So. Coming back Absolutely. to sort of this core blockchain stuff, uh, would love to kind of have your views about sort of um, pocket picks, right? So do you feel like there are unsung hero tokens out there, things that are underplayed, undervalued, you know, and, and you know, if so, why? And, you know, this, this is not investment advice. This segment is really just, let's talk about what shiny objects you see and why yep. you like those. Yeah, so speaking personally, I think this is probably, there's an area that I'm especially focused on, which is, uh, to your point about you know, a related entity, um, the gaming side of things. So I've been a lifelong PC gamer you know, since I was quite young, and it's been remarkable to see how quickly that industry has matured, both from a software and a hardware um, perspective. This past uh, few months, you know, I actually had to it was really hard to get a new video card for, for to upgrade my PC because the new NVIDIA 3080s were really out of stock, but I managed yeah. to nab one to play some Congrats. new releases coming out. Thank you. But um, long story short, I think that blockchain-enabled games are still an area that is very much under the radar for the most part because historically the gameplay loops have been very um, basic just because the technology has, has been very nascent as well as the fact that there aren't as many projects that have the funding compared to like an Activision to hire the, the writers, the 3D modelers, et cetera, to make something like a Call of Duty, for example. Yep. But I think that's starting to change and it's changing both in two ways, right? The first way is that I think digitally native games are becoming more um, compelling and interesting. Um, you know, one project that has taken a lot of the spotlight is, is Axie Infinity, yep. um, which is one where it's sort of, um, you know, if you're familiar with Pokemon, the idea is similar, but uh, different in other ways that enable uh, that are enabled by blockchain uh, technology. So you can collect, you can battle them, um, and they also have a, a community or a governance token that uh, hooks in with some of the additional incentive models that we talked about earlier on this um, conversation. But coming from the other side, I think what is to me actually um, potentially more interesting are the ways where um, legacy owners of gaming intellectual property, uh, whom I assume are all watching the blockchain technology space with a lot of interest, uh, might ultimately start dipping their toes in. Perhaps it's with a lower kind of tier two or tier three um, you know, property that they have. But I think if some of the learnings that we are gleaning from Axie's uh, success, meaning like user engagement is a lot higher, the kind of per transaction basket sizes are higher and uh, users of crypto gaming uh, tend to over index relative to like mobile games and their spends. Um, I think that is something extremely interesting that publishers uh, are probably watching closely. Now, I don't know that that means like Diablo 4 is going to have an NFT like tie in. I don't think we're there yet, 
Um, so the big pinch of salt here is it could still take longer to play out, but I do feel that what has been missing um, from a lot of crypto gaming experiences uh, are really those extremely compelling um, stories written by you know talented writers that, that really draw us in and and you know get us to want to spend more time with these um, fictional characters or in their fictional worlds, right? I think some of the I mean I read a lot. I'm sure we all do. We like to stay updated on the news, but some of the best pieces of fiction that I've experienced in the last few years have actually been through video games and not novels or audiobooks, right? Like The Last of Us 2, which is a PlayStation exclusive property, has won a lot of um, really big awards. Um, and, and, you know, one of my favorite games of all time is The Witcher 3, which I think is the only game that's won more Game of the Years than The Last of Us Part 2. But those are, um, you know, those successes, I think, really speak to the continued acceleration of demand for people of our generations and younger to 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 really um, connect with you know other characters and people and it can be in a virtual setting and that's just going to be norm going forward uh, much to our parents chagrin right you know people may not want to go outside not because they're lazy which was what happened with me when i was growing up but because it's arguably you know a bit more dangerous now and some of that fear will probably persist for a while but that to your point helps helps the digital gaming story i think yeah, I mean, I I like your comment about chagrin. Uh, I actually have this kind of like funny apocryphal story about a uh, small family office. Uh, there's a senior partner and a junior partner. The junior partner mm -hmm. actually has they have the same last name, and it's no <laughs> surprise because the junior partner is the son of the senior partner. Uh, yep. So the junior partner's portfolio consists of blockchain, cannabis, and esports. Right. Yep. And the thing that's so interesting is the senior partner thinks the junior partner is an idiot because mm -hmm. he basically thinks that the portfolio indicates that his son wants to stay at home, smoke pot and earn bitcoins by playing video <laughs> games. <laughs> right. Yep. And the thing that's really kind of a little frightening is that the senior partner might not be completely wrong. And mm -hmm. the junior partner also might not be completely wrong. So that, that yeah. so that's the scary part. part. The truth it's, is often in the middle. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea, ends, right? the idea of there being a middle in that scenario is actually unnerving, right? It's an un yep. it's, it it speaks to things like Ready Player One, you mm -hmm. know. So it speaks to the emergence of a metaverse economy, and it it speaks to elements of that that could be potentially dystopic so you know i i'm a i'm a For lifelong sure. uh you know pc game player and you know so i i definitely and we've had uh axie infinity on the show you yeah. know we've had a number of titles uh they're actually uh samson mao is working on uh infinite fleet which is a triple a kind of massively or maybe not massively but you know more like a multiplayer online real-time strategy mm -hmm. type of game you know and so i think he's there there are definitely emerging titles uh my thesis is that the bigger game companies are probably too complacent to embrace blockchain yep. with the possible exception uh you know there's a, there's a couple of like fairly epic right big I obviously think, epic. Sweeney's yeah yeah so there's a couple of like exceptions of uh, you know uh, ubisoft is kind of playing with this stuff mm -hmm. a little bit you know so we're seeing some of that but i would say that the megas like 
uh, obviously uh, EA, uh, you know, the, 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 the super mega classic game companies uh, don't really have strong incentives. Activision Blizzard, you know, strong the, disincentives. Correct. The system, the, the system is dilemma. correct. The system is working beautifully for them. They're exploiting it very beautifully. You know, obviously Microsoft is suddenly become one of those as well so the, these are very kind of big complacent game companies and you know they they don't uh they don't see what's coming down the pike so you know i i do and think, I think that's, that's what makes yeah. the startup crypto game developers so excited because they know that the complacence of the large incumbents is working to their advantage and um yeah i think now even versus a few years ago the new games that are coming out are having richer backstories it's an area where um one project that i was speaking with the founder was telling me that um, they, you know, for, for their game launch, I think they internally were writing, there was like a, a, a lore wiki that the team was working on that was like 500 pages uh, <laughs> backstory, which is very different than a lot of the games that have come out today. Um, but certainly one element that I think has been missing to, to really draw people into a fictional universe. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we're talking about is kind of long-term engagement, right? Because ultimately, the generation of meaning and, you know, enabling people to really kind of, uh, enter a truly alternate universe with all the full richness of the you know the universe that we have you know that is the yep. ready player one metaverse scenario we did also have a show uh with the uh, animoca brands uh as well mm -hmm. as with sandbox so we've definitely been tracking That's the great. Kind of emergence of some of these kind of prominent titles as well as uh splinter lands and so you know we continue to look into the space uh you know particularly from sort of a thought leadership perspective i do think that these are uh, the thing that I think is important to understand for us is that we believe that the leading edge verticals will be financial services and to some extent mm -hmm. gaming. Gaming being sort of a bleeding edge technology. You, you mentioned kind of the NVIDIA cards, 3080, etc. You know, and obviously consoles like PS5, like those are absolutely bleeding edge technologies. You know, mm -hmm. and of course, the people that have them are gamers, right? So, you know, they, so to me, digital entertainment and gaming is a leading early adopter vertical segment within the broader kind of world of, of these yeah. kinds of like, uh, you know, if you look at that technology adoption curve, you're definitely going to see gamers with like uh, heavy, heavy investments. And when you think about those graphics cards and consoles, you know, they're, they're not, they're not cheap. So like, you know, those are serious yeah. commitments to you know, enter Definitely. this world and to participate. Um, and to, to your one point that I think you mentioned that bears repeating is I am also hopeful that, um, you know, to avoid the dystopian future that uh, gaming can potentially facilitate. It's really important to just keep in mind that, uh, you know, I feel like so long as the goal of these games and the emerging metaverse is for more engagement, as opposed to escaping from the realities of like being a human or to distance yourself, I think, will be all right, but it's important to, to keep that in mind. Um, if, if we use games as connections to, to people, to meet new people and to understand different points of view, I think that's ultimately what everyone is probably hoping for, right? Builders of these communities as opposed to, to ways to um, kind of, you know, avoid, uh, you know, avoid people or to avoid like going outside because yeah, you can't really avoid that part of yourself. Actually, uh, I had a recent interview with Brian Kerr, uh, you know, from Kava and he uh, mm -hmm. actually made that point. It turns out that he's actually the one of the founders of an esports team called Fnatic in Europe. And mm -hmm. so he's actually been very, very deeply involved awesome. in the gaming scene. And his point exactly was your point, right? Which is that these are pro-social environments 
points, you know, and when you look at things like Fortnite dance moves and you, so he's talking about how you can have potentially even more deeply meaningful social interactions, you know, with your friends and that, you know, you can really create a narrative landscape that you can control in a way that enables you to have almost like deeper conversations with your friends in this kind of potentially more relaxing uh, environment and one that kind of stimulates uh, really interesting, potentially creative thoughts, depending on the kind of environment. Definitely. 100% agree with that. Good. Well, so, uh, you know, I think the thing that I think would be great to kind of close in on. So we're already kind of like tickling the corners of this, which is sort of the what I call the big idea segment, right? Which is, you know, we mentioned Elon Musk, you know, the big idea is really the transition of the planet to a sustainable mode with electricity, but also the transition off planet with something like SpaceX. So that is clearly a big idea. Wow. Other big yeah. idea, you know, other big ideas involve uh, actually I read uh, the biography of Elon Musk, and one of the things it features is it features mm -hmm. in college that Elon obsessively played a game called Civilizations, which I'm sure any gamer yep. has the knowledge of. Uh, you know, and the thing that's really ironic to me is that I think Elon is still playing Civilization uh, in the world. Yeah, probably. And he's going for the space victory. <laughs> like the space victory is that's one hilarious. of the conditions where you get off planet and, and then you join another game by the same publisher called Alpha Centauri, you know, where you basically launch your civilization into space. Like it's a completely sub separate game title. But uh, the, the point about the big idea is, is that like, if you look at characters like Steve Jobs, he had a big idea about um, uh, basically personal computing. So I guess what I'd love to kind of hear is like, you know, what is, what's, what's your big idea? Obviously we tickled it, but I'd love to kind of like go a little deeper, you know, because the big, big ideas tend to be multi-decade, you know, and they tend to follow these, these sort of really epic arcs of like the development of history. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are plenty of big ideas that I believe in, uh, you know, the space flight and kind of colonization, I think is something that is, um, in some ways, a manifest destiny of the human condition, but putting aside the colonization um, at the expense of others' perspective, Mars is uninhabited so far as we know. So I think it'll be cool if we get there um, in the next couple of decades, ideally. But I think the the the, the big idea that um, I really am excited most about, and I think crypto economics does really enable, is is this idea that. Um, we are moving to a world that is more like Ready Player One, but the metaverse inside of it. And specifically, I think, um, to put the gaming aside, I think what is really interesting is that the new environments, the new technologies that enable, whether it's haptic feedback or real-time um, kind of interaction between more than just like tens of peoples, if we're able to get the simultaneous kind of sessions and sharding and instancing technology correct, I, I think all of that really enables us both to expand the scope of our experience. Um, and also just like you were saying, connecting with people beyond language barriers, beyond um, socioeconomic backgrounds. And I think that's very cool and something that should reduce a lot of the other, um, I guess, frictions that civilization has had to bear to date, right? Whether like, if you think about the guns, germs and steel and that context, uh, yes. um, Great book. you know, that like, the, the kind of, uh, or, or sapiens, right, where there's diseases, there were like injustices, um, and all of those kind of ills that have been so far outweighed by, um, you know, the innovation, the 
slowly kind of improving living conditions, I think we can supercharge that, right? With with um, creating, uh, whether you call it a metaverse or something else, it might be even more beyond, like interconnectedness that is uh, be beyond just like a digital construct. But I think what that ultimately opens the door to is probably collaboration that, um, you know, helps make it easier or faster or safer for some type of um, like advanced general intelligence to come about in a way that is like ethically aligned with what, what I think humanity wants to do while avoiding the catastrophic result of a great filter event, which might be why we haven't heard back from the aliens yet. So that's something that ah. is scary, but also exciting, but it is a big idea. I think um, I've always believed in, um, even after, like, I, I guess ever since reading the future, I think it's called The Future is Near, which was, or The Singularity is Near, the, the Kurzweil yes. book. Yes. Um, like, I, I don't think a, we'll get there quite as quickly. Yeah. No, it's. It, I think he's off by a bunch of things. But I think the idea seems inevitable that we will, uh, we will be making progress towards AGI, but it's important to, to get it, um, the alignment problem correct. And a, a big part of that is transparency. And, uh, you know, blockchain is also yes. responsible for that, but also like value alignment, right? So I think these are all interconnected, which makes sense because a lot of tech trends ultimately converge into products and services that people want. So I think you can't really be passionate about one big idea without realizing that a lot of these big ideas kind of play with each other, right? And yeah, um, yeah. I, I, space I... colonization and resources from, from like orbiting asteroids will enable new uh, cost-effective ways to manufacture like integrated circuits or, or, or storage or whatever. So I think they're all well, and I think super if we interesting. Do, if we do get into asteroid mining, then unfortunately the thesis around physical gold actually actually is not so good yeah. anymore, right? Because there are trillions... Poor Peter Schiff. There are absolutely mega trillions of, of dollars worth of gold sitting in the asteroid belt. And as soon yeah. as we get access to it, you know, the scarcity of gold is just going to, you know, your people will be building... Uh, you know, entire, they won't be just building toilets, they'll be building entire cities out of gold, you know, just for the heck of it. So, you know, I, I think, uh, but I think going kind of back to what your core point was, you know, for me, one of the reasons, so I do have an AI background, I developed computational neural networks and novel algorithms in graduate school uh, in, in a neuroscience program. And, you know, uh, the reason why I'm working on blockchain and not AI actually is that in the short run, AI and AGI are actually in service of the existing more extractive and coercive mm. uh, economic forces. Whereas I feel like blockchain is an interesting uh, characteristic, which I'm hopeful will provide more transparency, as you mentioned, uh, yep. but also more, uh, you know, um, consent. So with open source mm -hmm. software, it becomes more consensual. Ideally, uh, because of the lowered cost, it becomes more inclusive as well Definitely. as more fair, and it also becomes more innovative, right? Because as you lower the cost of entry into a system, you basically increase the rate of innovation on top of the system. So I would say that as a platform for, you know, being more transparent, inclusive, and, you know, innovative, I think that blockchain has the promise. Uh, you know, I do think that in the long run, you know, we will see advancements in 
artificial intelligence, you know, and, but I think that they have to be based on kind of a core set of ethics so that we don't get into the kinds of dystopian scenarios that we do see in science fiction. So, um, yeah, this has been, uh, you know, really exciting and a a very rollicking uh, conversation. Um, I like that. It's been wide ranging covered. I think everything that somebody uh, that's in your audience might, might be interested in at some point. So very, uh, you know, great coverage there. Yeah. I appreciate it. You know, and I, I think the goal here with the show is to absolutely help people to keep up with this latest in Bitcoin and blockchain. So obviously, I think the frontiers of NFT, I think, are important. Obviously, we've talked quite quite extensively about the emergence of a mature market and fundamentals and fundamental analysis, which I think is quite important as well. So, you know, I think we are kind of part of this broader story arc of this maturation of this asset class. And of course, the impact of this to digital entertainment, which, of course, is larger than any previous entertainment system. You know, the gaming world is bigger than Hollywood. And, you know, we're, we're definitely yeah. going to see... Uh, you know that that's a that's been a generational change, and you know we're we're probably going to see that continue. Uh, obviously, COVID has been very friendly to digital entertainment, so you know we'll, yeah. we'll probably and really killed killed the theater exhibitors, uh, unfortunately. Right now, everything's day and date, um, but that is unfortunately the price of progress. That ultimately is a net benefit in terms of the new value and um, consumer surplus that's that's released by by uh, the, these new scaling solutions and technologies. Yeah, and I think that the kind of closing note is really around the shift towards digital and digital revenue. And obviously, digital currency becomes sort of the heartbeat of these emergent systems. So, you know, we're definitely going to see, I think, a bright future for this whole space. And of course, a bright future for uh, you and your team at CoinFund. So re- really appreciate uh, you hanging out at the Miko Bits show. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll have this out, uh, you know, sometime uh, this week. Thanks so much, Miko. It was a pleasure to be on and um, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and your audience. Oh, fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks.